I'm Seth for Privacy, and thanks so much for joining us on the journey to sovereignty. We're beyond thrilled to have a place for us to chat about all things sovereignty, the why and how of reclaiming your digital sovereignty, and to give you all a chance to chime in, ask questions, and join the conversation. Journey to Sovereignty is brought to you by Foundation, where we build Bitcoin-centric tools that empower you to reclaim your digital sovereignty. This includes our Passport Hardware Wallet and Envoy mobile app. So as always, I'm joined by Bitcoin Q&A, Head of Customer Experience. How's it going, Q&A? Yeah, doing well, Seth. Thanks uh, again for having me on. And uh, yeah, looking forward to, to diving into VPNs. I've uh, been a uh, avid user of one for at least the last uh, two or three years now. So uh, happy to uh, dive in and uh, educate people on some best practices and why they're important. Yeah, and I think like we were chatting a little bit about before uh, before we jumped in here, I think that a lot of people in the Bitcoin space are familiar with VPNs um, and it's becoming more of a common thing. Um, but I think there's a lot of misnomers still in the space. And, and I think especially after unpacking the attack on nodes last week with Timo, uh, Xerox B10C, uh, and we had that really interesting conversation about some surveillance that's happening on the Bitcoin network. And we, we talked about VPNs as a, a tool to protect yourself against that. Um, but we didn't really get to dive in too much into what they are. Um, so I really wanted to unpack the broader concepts of network privacy and focus on VPNs or, or virtual private networks as they're called. Um, but before we dive into what VPNs are, we, we, I think we need to better understand what they're protecting us against when we use them. So when we talk about like your network provider, or your ISP, um, internet service providers, they're called, they actually can see and uh, capture a lot of data about what you do online. Um, but the most important piece of data that they usually capture is something that we call metadata. Do you mind kind of breaking down what metadata is and why it matters for us, QA? Yeah, sure. So uh, the the most commonly used sort of tagline about metadata is that it's it's data about other data, uh, which is kind of wishy washy. Uh, so to kind of simplify that and break that down just a touch, um, an example of some metadata. Uh, sorry, an example of some data uh, that let's say somebody listening to a phone call, if they were to hear the contents of the phone call, that would kind of be the data or the information that is being communicated or shared. Um, a metadata about that phone call would be, uh, Seth is talking to Q&A. That would be like the, so that's the data about the phone call or the metadata. Um, another example would be um, the websites that you visit but not necessarily exactly what you do when you're on that website or let's say the sub pages that you visit. So uh, me going to foundationdevices.com, my ISP would see that metadata of my personal uh, IP address visiting that location or that uh, domain, um, but they wouldn't be able to see the specifics of where I click or any forms that I fill in whilst I'm doing that. So that's the kind of difference between data and metadata. With regards to our ISP and, and metadata, so um, yeah, so that's what what roughly that they're sort of tracking, uh, or and most of the time they're bound to by law, unfortunately, to kind of track this sort of metadata of roughly where we go, uh, the IP addresses that we're kind of contacting, or the domain searches that we're making when we're online, um, and this obviously this isn't also limited to uh, you know your home internet provider. This also includes your uh, phone internet provider as well so your mobile network provider um all of these uh, companies and, and service providers are bound by law to to, to sort of uh, collect this metadata which um can stack up to be a sizable uh, insight into your life unfortunately and i'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to kind of dive in um onto the, the more details of metadata and how dangerous it can potentially be yeah, I mean, there's a, a super famous quote from an ex-NSA director where he said that we kill people based on metadata. Um, he was kind of talking about how the the NSA's programs, they, they quickly learned that they can't collect every piece of data and actually analyze and make sense of every piece of data. If they're looking at all the calls, all the actual audio, video, text messages, it quickly gets out of hand. And they really is, realize that if they just look at the metadata, they can get more than enough information to make according to them, well-informed decisions on the actions that they actually take. Um, so it's something where that's kind of the simpler approach. That's even a common approach just in basic kind of network security. When a, a company is trying to keep their network secure, a lot of times they don't look at the content. They just care about metadata because that's the better thing to focus on from their perspective. So um, that's, that's why like usually when we think about surveillance, we're thinking like when I send you a text message, the contents could be being read. And that certainly is is possible. That certainly is the case in specific scenarios. But a lot of times what's actually being stored and saved and analyzed for, in the long term is 
that I texted you at that time and that I've texted you the past seven days or that I text you every Wednesday at 10 a.m. because we're going to go get coffee. Um, it's that metadata that's usually more more commonly captured. Um, and I think when we dive into the why, a lot of it is just that it's much simpler for them. If they need to store information, it's a lot easier to store the information on who's going where rather than what they're doing when they're there, who's talking to who rather than what they're talking about. Um, and they can make make much more sense of that. And I think the other, other reason, and uh, this is... Uh, because of a good development is that encryption and sometimes end-to-end encryption has become more and more the norm in our communications. I mean, even as we've seen chat apps like Signal take over, as we've seen Telegram and implement secret chats, um, as we've seen companies like Facebook forced to at least pretend to do end-to-end encryption in their messages or allow the option for people to do that. It's become more normal to be able to encrypt the contents of messages. But usually in those cases, the metadata about, again, who's talking to who is not encrypted. Um, so what can we actually do about this? Like, how can we protect the metadata about what we do online from the ISP that also has our personal ID, that also has our home address, that also has our bank account info for payments? That's where VPNs really come into play. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts, Q&A, on on what in the world a VPN actually is, uh, and then I can maybe fill in any gaps there. Yeah, sure. So VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. Um, and that is a, a relationship that you have with uh, a said VPN provider. Uh, there's loads and loads of good ones on the market. We're going to come on to some uh, loose recommendations later. Um, but uh, what when you open this relationship with uh, with the VPN provider, um, you'll be given some connection information, usually an app to download that allows you to send all of your uh, internet traffic through what we call an end-to-end encrypted tunnel um, such that it shields all of your internet data from your ISP, your internet service provider. So you would be effectively tunneling all of that uh, internet activity as well as all that metadata um, through a, a, a virtual tunnel, if you like, over the, the airwaves such that your ISP would not be able to see any of that information. Um, the crucial part to remember here is that, you know, as with as with all uh, privacy solutions, there is no silver bullet. And just because you're running a VPN, uh, this doesn't sort of completely remove trust from the equation. Um, having a relationship with a VPN service provider is absolutely a trusted equation, uh, sorry, a, a trusted uh, solution. Um, because uh, you're kind of moving the trust a little bit from your ISP who is learning everything about you to your VPN provider who will see certain aspects of your internet traffic um, who may or may not be logging uh, all of those requests and and traffic that you make when you're using that service. Um, Most of these services do claim to be uh, logging, uh, sorry, claim not to be logging um, your your internet traffic and, and any relevant metadata they are, I guess, incentivized not to do that because, you know, by design, these are quote unquote privacy focused companies who make their business in protecting your privacy. Uh, but I think the the ultimate kind of, um, uh, you know, we're Bitcoiners, we, we don't trust, we verify. Uh, the difficult part with this is that we've, we've got no physical way to kind of prove whether or not any of these VPN providers are or are not logging our uh, internet activity. Um, so there is a there's a kind of calculated decision to be made here or, or at least one based on reputation that we can get into a little bit later but that's the general crux of a, of a vpn is a kind of a, a semi-trusted relationship where you can shield your internet uh, acti- activity from your isp so if your isp is your main um i'm using air quotes here but adversary or the person that you want to provide um to shield your internet traffic from then a vpn can in certain circumstances be a great solution for that yeah, and I love that you hit on the the concept of trust because I think that's the the hard one where people either don't realize that you're still trusting a VPN, or they think that because you still have to trust the VPN provider that they're it's a pointless service to use. Um, but I think that's where I think people go astray. And one of the things that I like to think about when I'm talking about VPNs is that where you live, usually you have very few choices in your internet service provider or in your cell phone company. Um, it obviously depends on what country you're in, what state you're in, et cetera, what coverage is like. But you usually have very limited choices. And then among those choices, you have to give over lots and lots of personal information to be able to sign up and actually get internet access. So you have a very limited pool. I don't think I know anyone who loves their their ISP no matter where they live. It's almost always a, a very monopolistic and painful relationship. So 
you don't have much choice there, but with VPN providers, you do have a lot of choice and there's not really any friction in moving between them. Um, so it really opens up a, a whole world of options for you and that you can choose based on the things that you find valuable. You can choose based on the ethos of the team. You can choose based on the payment methods that they accept. You can choose based on the way that they do signups. You have a lot of choice um, and you can make sure that you're using a high quality one where you normally have very little control over your ISP themselves. So even though you're still placing trust in the VPN provider, you're shifting that from an ISP that you basically should never trust and you have very limited options among to a VPN provider where you can choose any VPN provider globally that you prefer. Um, so there's a lot of really good aspects to a VPN, despite it still having a trusted component. Uh, and we'll talk more about Tor on the next episode. I'm uh, excited to, to dive into that concept as well, because these are usually viewed as similar tools, even though they have very different uh, benefits and trade-offs. Um, but Tor is the opposite case where you don't have to trust anyone in the network, but that also introduces a lot of potential pain points, a lot of user experience issues. So there's there's definitely trade-offs with both approaches. Um, but when we look at a VPN, what what exactly does a VPN protect us against? Um, we've we've touched on a good bit about how it really detaches surveillance of what we're doing online from our personal ID, from our home address, et cetera. And I think usually that's like the best way to view them is that it doesn't make everything that you're doing online anonymous. It doesn't make you impervious to like a nation state surveilling your data. But what it, was, what it does do is break that direct link between your ID, your home address, your credit card information, your bank account info, and your activity online, which makes it a lot harder for a bad actor, especially if we're talking like a, a hacker or something like that, to connect the dots between your online activity and who you actually are in person, which is is really powerful. Um, the second main thing that I look at when I look at what a VPN protects us against is it, it also protects you against the actual sites and applications that you use. In that when you go on Twitter, when you sync a Bitcoin wallet with someone else's Bitcoin node, normally you'd be revealing your true home or mobile IP address. And with that can be not only those links to exactly who you are, if that person also somehow got access to the, the records of the ISP or those were leaked or hacked, but it also can easily reveal that you're the same entity to that, to that website or that person, despite you maybe trying to use multiple Twitter accounts and not have them linked together. If you're connecting from the same IP every time, it's very trivial to see that you're the same person or at least that you live under the same roof. Um, so it does protect you against the sites that you're actually going to. This is one of the reasons why, like when we talked about the, uh, about the node attacks that we, uh, that were going on or that are going on still um, under last episode, VPNs help to protect you because they hide your source IP address from the broader Bitcoin network. So that even if someone connected a transaction to an IP address, it would be VPNs, it wouldn't be attributable back to you, and they wouldn't be able to get a clear picture of, of who you are. Um, so there's a lot of good benefits there. Any others you want to chime in on uh, with their Q&A? Yeah, I think um, one of the analogies that I've heard about VPNs is that they provide you with a an anonymity set, which is a, a common term, piece of terminology that's used in the Bitcoin uh, privacy spaces where you know, you're... you're um, hiding amongst the crowd of similar faces. Um, you can look at using a VPN uh, as somewhat analogous to that, where uh, rather than having a unique IP address that is known to, well, everybody, any any website that you visit, um, but also it's known who you are uh, to your ISP, which can be tied obviously to your personal information, your location, etc. cetera. Um, when you connect through a VPN, uh, you essentially look the same as anybody else that's using that specific VPN server. So you go from an anonymity set of one, depending on how your ISP does it, or very few people, to potentially thousands. You know, the uh, VPNs are thankfully, you know, quite wide, widely used um, these days so you're which is a great thing because your anonymity set is growing so rather than you just being one person from ip address 1.1.2.7 uh you're now sharing that same ip address off of say uh ivpn or a Mulvad, um vpn server there might be you know a couple of thousand people all connected and accessing various different websites and from a um from a person whose website that you're running as you visit their website, you look identical because you're all sharing that same IP address. So you're hiding in a much larger crowd, which brings with it, obviously, all of the benefits and, and shielding uh, shielding benefits in terms of metadata and both pure, pure, just pure data as well um, that you're kind of sharing that amongst the crowd. So a great analogy and kind of helps people grok the, the basics of, you know, how that operates in a purely digital sense. Yeah, that's yeah, super helpful there. 
one of the things that I always want to make sure that we do here on the show is to talk clearly about trade-offs. Um, because like you said, no matter what privacy tool we're talking about, no matter what freedom tech we're talking about, there are always trade-offs to everything. Um, it's unfortunate there is no no perfect solution for privacy, no perfect solution for anonymity. So there's, a, there's always things that we need to know going into using a tool. Um, so I think the most important thing to know about a VPN is that it does not protect you against everything. Um, so let's dive in a little bit into what it doesn't protect us against. Um, do you mind kind of walking through some of the major things that people, I think, usually expect a VPN to protect them against, but but it, it doesn't actually help their Q&A? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think that the, the most obvious one and, and often somewhat misunderstood is that, um, you know, by using a VPN, that doesn't uh, stop the, your ISP knowing that you're using a VPN. Um, all of these common services, particularly the more popular ones, all have known uh, IP, server IP addresses. Uh, so it's trivial for anybody that is able to see your uh, internet traffic, i.e. your ISP. Uh, they'll see those connections go into a commonly used uh, VPN server to know that you're using a VPN. From then on, obviously, they can't see your traffic or where you're heading, but that doesn't prevent that, you know, it still doesn't fix the the issue that the ISP knows that you're doing that. Uh, generally speaking, uh, in most of the Western world, that's generally not a problem. Um, most ISPs are okay with you using uh, VPNs, but uh, there's no saying that that won't always be the case. I think the, uh, the next one would be that uh, a VPN doesn't prevent uh, a nation state or somebody with significant resources from forcing a VPA, VPN provider to to hand over your uh, original IP address or your you know your rough geographical location, and potentially depending on how you paid for that VPN, they could ask they could gleam your personal information from that, uh, especially if you've paid for the VPN service via a credit card or uh, a debit card that's obviously tied to your real world uh, identity. So those are two of the the main common ones that are kind of obvious to me. Uh, I mentioned earlier about the the fact that, um, about VPNs logging. Um, so a VPN doesn't protect you from the VPN. You know, we, I just want to stress that again, trusted relationship. Uh, they still see all that metadata of where, where you go on the internet. Uh, you're choosing to share that with them versus having to share that with your ISP without a VPN. Um, we mentioned the logging. Um, most of these VPN providers do claim not to be logging all of that metadata. They are incentivized not to. Ultimately, we'll never know, uh, and that's part of the trust in this relationship. Uh, and equally, they can also be forced by a government to um, to start logging uh, and maybe to do that under duress or, or without without notice to their customers. Uh, again, ultimately, the customers will never know. Um, all of these VPN providers are regulated businesses. Uh, they're registered somewhere. They're under the clutches of wherever... Um, wherever they're based in the in the world. Um, so I'm sure they're, they're not going to kind of put themselves out of business to, to protect their customers without, you know, putting themselves in jail. So those are some of the uh, the common ones, I think. Yeah, I, I love that you touched on that that last point because I think there's a, a misnomer that because you pay for a VPN service, they'll never reveal your your true IP address if the government comes knocking, if they come with a warrant, et cetera. Um, and that's definitely a misnomer because they they do have that data. Um, like you said, it is a trusted relationship. They know where you're connecting to the VPN from. They know that source IP address. Um, so it is a trusted relationship and it's a relationship where you need to understand that they are under the the regulation and law of wherever they're, they're stationed at. There was a huge uproar I think it was last year um, that Proton Mail, the the email portion of the the Proton company, um, turned over the IP address of a Proton Mail user to the Swiss government, um, and people were shocked and upset that they would do that, and and didn't understand like that they had that data and that they had to turn that over by law to the Swiss government. Um, and it shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone. I mean, uh, the fact that you pay five dollars a month for a VPN or something doesn't mean the company is going to go to jail for you as a user. Like they're, they're going to still serve their interests, but the beauty of using a VPN that commits to not log and has a reputation to not log uh, and using a VPN that allows you to pay and something that protects your anonymity to not give over credit card info or personal ID means that if for some reason a government does come knocking, if there's some sort of crackdown and they, they want to knock uh, crackdown on maybe Bitcoin users who have connected to a Bitcoin node through VPN, if they go to your VPN provider and all their VPN provider has is a Bitcoin transaction ID with how you paid and your account ID and an IP address, there's not that much to go on there. There's very little. And so you want to minimize what the VPN provider could give out about you 
just like you want to do with pretty much any other online account. Uh, but it can become even more important because that VPN provider could, if forced to, have logs that give a lot of info into what you do online. Um, so there's definitely, there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of trade-offs, and like we said, it's not a silver bullet, but it helps to protect you against the most common threats. Um, and I think something we didn't cover as much yet is, is just kind of this idea of targeted surveillance and mass surveillance. And usually when we're talking about surveillance for the common person, like if, if there's no reason that you specifically would be surveilled, you're usually needing to look at this mass surveillance scenario. So you want to be concerned with how do I protect myself from companies that want to collect data on me, from governments that want to collect data on me, when they're just doing it to cover all their bases, to have that data to, I don't know, maybe enforce tax laws or something. You don't really know why they're collecting all that data. And there's usually not a good reason. Usually they don't even know why they're collecting your data. But you want to protect yourself against that mass surveillance angle because that's the most common for regular people, for people who are generally law-abiding citizens who you have no kind of reason for there to be a target on your back. You most want to protect yourself against that mass surveillance so that when they're doing this sweeping surveillance of every user, of every user on a specific ISP, of everyone using a specific app, you want to be protected as best as possible. Now, when you're talking about targeted surveillance, the, the threat model shifts greatly there. Because at that point, you're talking about a, a nation state or a law enforcement agency or someone who not just they don't just want to surveil a general group, but they actually want to find you specifically and get info on what you specifically are doing online. And that's where a lot of these tools will break down because they're focused on providing protection against general surveillance, against this mass surveillance concept, and not on preventing targeted surveillance against you specifically. So it's cases like that. I mean, think the the case with ProtonMail giving up the IP address of of a ProtonMail user was a case of targeted surveillance. The, the Swiss government knew who they wanted to go after. They wanted to catch this one person. They knew that they were a Proton user because the emails had come from a ProtonMail address. So it was, it was very much a targeted attack and targeted surveillance attempt by the government. Whereas if you were just a regular ProtonMail user and you used a VPN while using ProtonMail, uh, Proton wouldn't have even had an IP address to hand over that was directly linked to you. They would have had to go to another company, maybe IVPN or Molvod, and try to get an IP address there. Um, and all this, not to say, again, to break laws or incentivize anything like that, but it's just to say that if you're in this scenario of targeted surveillance, you need to be a lot more cautious and think beyond tools like VPNs. But for most of us, really, we want to protect ourselves against this mass surveillance. And that's where VPNs really, uh, really I think, come in handy. Any other uh, thoughts there, Q and A? Yeah, I think um, I think we've covered covered all the basics. Um, just want to kind of reiterate around. We're going to come on to best practices in a second. Um, I think the the uh, obvious one that I kind of want to hit on around protection from VPNs is that there's a lot of uh, quote unquote free VPNs that you'll see in the app store. Um, which, generally speaking, are not recommended to be used. Um, obviously, it costs that company uh, money to run that VPN server or multiple servers. Uh, most of these companies run more than one. Um, and there's going to be significant levels of traffic going through that. So um, I would guess just a word of caution and to, to kind of ask yourself the question, why would a company be offering a free VPN? Uh, what's their incentive to do that? Um, I, and there's been some... Um, some uh, news stories in the past before now where free VPNs have actually been approached by law enforcement and and do have significant amounts of data um, on their customers. And some have even been found to be uh, selling that metadata to, to other companies as well, obviously, to try and recoup some costs for um, for offering that quote unquote free VPN service. So, uh, yeah, I think that would be a, a final one in terms of VPN protections or protecting yourself from certain VPNs is, yeah, generally speaking, uh, free VPNs are are not free. You're going to be paying with some form of data and should be avoided. Yeah, the the old adage that if you're not paying with money, you're paying with your data is, is definitely true there. And there's even, I think, a step further with VPNs because they are a, a known tool for privacy. There have been many cases of honeypot VPNs in the past where law enforcement or malicious entities who just want to collect data to sell the data and don't care about your privacy at all will spin up multiple VPN companies, pretend that they're legitimate privacy-preserving VPN companies while secretly logging your data. And usually it does come with ads on random YouTube channels that have nothing to do with privacy. It comes with free uh, tiers that seem to be very generous. 
because the goal is not to get you as a user long-term and to preserve your privacy. The goal is to collect data on on people who specifically think that they have a need for added privacy online. Um, so oftentimes it can be a way to actually target privacy-loving individuals. So you have to be very cautious. And like you said, basically avoiding free-tier VPN almost always is going to be your your best first step. And once you get past that, I think there's there's a lot that we can dive into there. Um, and I think this is where the majority of kind of the questions and, and comments leading into this space have come. But I think a lot of people understandably rely on recommendations from people that they trust for what VPN service to use. Um, and funnily enough, my first tip for choosing a good VPN is not to blindly trust anyone. Um, obviously, I think that myself and Q&A can be trusted. I I have done a lot of research on this. I've thought about it deeply and, and used many different VPN services. But one of the key things is not to just blindly trust some ad you see on YouTube or some kind of um, pitch you hear from some random person, but to, to do your own research, to find other solutions, other content creators in the space, uh, other lists of VPNs with rankings, and try to come to a kind of a cohesive picture of what a good VPN provider is. Because um, like we've talked about, VPNs are not all created equal. But what are some other tips that you have Q&A for how we can best approach choosing and then actually using a VPN provider? Yeah, so uh, this is talking from experience. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the first uh, of a VPN that uh, that I purchased, I purchased via my uh, my debit card, which is obviously tied to my personal information. So I shared all of my personal information, including my banking information with uh, said VPN provider to uh, provide me with the service such that, you know, should that VPN provider ever be uh, subpoenaed or pressured to give information on their users, they've got my name and address and my banking details to know that I was uh, one of their customers and here's my IP address that I frequently connect from. So please don't do that one. Uh, I would only recommend a VPN provider that you can pay for in Bitcoin, Lightning, or any other cryptocurrency that takes your fancy. Um, two of the most common ones uh, straight out the gate would be uh, ProtonMail, sorry, ProtonVPN, uh, iVPN, and also Molvad VPN. You can pay for all of those in various different Bitcoin, Lightning, cryptocurrency, uh, again, of your choice. Um, and the reason we do that is to detach your payment information from your VPN provider. So uh, personally speaking with uh, with Molvad is my, my favorite. Um, there's no personal information required. You purchase via, uh, well, I, I purchase via Bitcoin uh, and you just literally get given an invoice to pay you pay that invoice, you, then you get given an account number and your account is credited. You can pay for up anywhere between, I think, one month all the way up to 12 months. And the more time that you purchase, um, the cheaper that becomes uh, on net. Um, and, there's, and then when it comes time to renewal, all you do is go to your account number, top up your account uh, and just pay the relevant uh, Bitcoin invoice and you just your account is there credited. No names, no addresses, uh, no emails, nothing at all. So um, I know this is becoming an increasing trend with um, with VPN providers and, and any uh, service providers that do offer that would be top of my list. Um, just so that you can provide as little information as possible to the VPN provider themselves to safeguard yourself from the theoretical um, time uh, at which a government entity pressures them for information on their um, on their customers, knowing full well that the people who have chosen to use that service are privacy preserve preserving individuals. Um, so I think those would be my main three recommendations. Uh, Mulvad and IVPN don't require anything, and I'm pretty sure that Proton just requires an email address, but all, all of which can be paid via uh, Bitcoin or Lightning um, so that you can, again, detach that all important personal information and uh, payment information as well. Yeah, I think one more thing I'll add on like why you want to provide as little information as possible is because it's not always the the nation state that you're trying to protect yourself against. Again, I think for most people, really the bigger risk is that the VPN provider themselves will get hacked and information on who's using that VPN, what their credit card info is, maybe what their home address is, whatever, uh, gets leaked in, in addition to the source IP that you've been connecting to. I don't know of any major VPNs that have had this actually happen in the past, but no company is completely immune to cyber attacks. Um, so you shouldn't assume that that data won't get out. So that's another situation where just giving up as little information as possible is always going to be an advantage for you. Whether your threat model is just kind of mass surveillance, if it's targeted surveillance, whatever it is, 
you want to give up as little information as possible. So you definitely hit the main three that I recommend uh, Q&A. I think that I like Proton if you want to use all of their services because uh, they have fantastic email. They have fantastic now private calendar. They have a lot of other things that you can you can bundle and save a lot of money on the VPN service. Uh, and their, their tools really are cohesive and work well together. So I think like if you're going to use ProtonMail or any of their other tools, I think it's an especially useful one to use ProtonVPN. Um, I think right now they only do Bitcoin on-chain for payments. I don't think they've done any Lightning support or Monero support or anything like that yet. Um, but you can pay with Bitcoin on-chain with your account. It's pretty wonky the way they do it. It takes a while to like get credited. It's not a very clean flow, but they do accept Bitcoin. So don't feel like you have to pay with credit card uh, like like I did when I initially signed up way back when. Um and then, like you said, I think Molbod started the trend with the the no account sign up, where you just get the account ID, and I, I think it's just absolutely fantastic. I view into the same thing: just sign up, pay, get an account ID, save that account ID, and your your Bitwarden or whatever kind of password manager you use, treat it like a password because that does give access to topping up your account and stuff like that. Um, and then and then roll from there. But those are all really really good recommendations. And if you look at any other kind of uh, privacy experts in this space. If you look at like a, a tech lore or something like that, almost always IVPN and Molvod will be top of the list with Proton somewhere up there as well. So I think like a, a lot of that has been, I've been looking at what other people value that I trust in the space and coming to a conclusion at the end, plus using all of these uh, VPNs for quite a long time as well. I've bounced between all three of those. Um, the only other thing that I would add, I guess there's a couple other things I'll add around there, but one of the things with VPNs is you gain the most value from them when you use them all the time. So usually what you want to do is sign up for the VPN. Usually there's a device limit depending on what kind of plan you choose with how many devices you can connect. Um, but usually you want to go ahead and set up your devices that are most important, usually like desktops, laptops, phones, and just go ahead and connect to VPN. There's an always on VPN option in pretty much every operating system that you want to go ahead and enable so that immediately when you start up your phone, that VPN is running and always on. Um, it's 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 crazy how simple using a VPN has gotten and how approachable it is. I don't really notice speed differences at all. Um, there is the occasional website that'll will block you. I think really the main pain point for me is USPS blocks VPN users for some reason. Um, but generally, the user experience of actually using a good VPN is has gotten so good these days. It's it's pretty crazy. Um, but you'll want to enable it all the time. You can go the next step. And you can use some sort of router at your house that allows you to actually set up the VPN connection on your router. The beauty of that is that if you do that, any device at your house, whether it's like a smart device, if it's a smart TV, uh, if it's just a, a neighbor or friend that comes over and hangs out on your Wi-Fi, all of that data gets shoved through the VPN tunnel and gets that added privacy. Um, so that really can be the best approach when you're looking at uh, how to use VPN that also usually doesn't count against your device limit more than one. Uh, so if you have like a five device plan through Molvot or something, if you use your router, that only counts as one device, despite you having lots of devices behind the scenes going through it. Um, so that can be a really good approach. It can be very tricky depending on what router you have. If you're using like the, the default router that your ISP gives you, et cetera, it, it may not be possible, but it's a good thing to look into usually as kind of a next step once you've gotten comfortable using a VPN. Um, but that that whole home VPN approach, I think, is is most valuable there. Um, anything else that I, I missed there, Q&A? Yeah, just two kind of random points to round this off. Uh, in terms of the recommendations, I've completely failed to mention that Proton and Mulvad actually accept uh, physical cash in the mail. So if you didn't even, you know, if you were super tinfoil hat mode and uh, you didn't even want to go to their website to, to kind of uh, purchase the, the VPN credits for your account, then you can actually... Um, you know, send them uh, physical cash in the mail uh, and associate it with your account number that way. I've never actually done that, um, mainly because I'm probably too lazy, but I uh, just wanted to stress that that is a, a viable option. And I know a couple of people have done that and, and it works perfectly. So if you wanted to take it that far, you can do for, with those two services. Um, and the the final piece has just completely uh, eluded me, Seth. So I'll go <laughs> hand that back over to you. Yeah, yeah, I actually had, had one that just came to me now uh, in regards to using ProtonVPN with the rest of their services. One of the, approach that, the approaches that I take when I look at privacy from my like the holistic everything I do online sense is I try to make sure that no one entity has 
a lot of visibility into what I do. So I like, I love Proton's suite of services. I love Proton Mail. It's all I use. I love Proton Calendar. It's all I use for my calendar. I've started using Proton Drive. I really enjoy their products. But one of the things that I don't want to give them, even though I trust the company as much as I could really trust a company at this point, um, I don't want to necessarily give them my source IP address as well. So while I could use Proton VPN, and while I highly recommend Proton VPN normally, I personally choose not to use it because I would rather to place that trust on handing my source IP to a company with someone else that I trust. So like I personally, I use IVPN mostly. And the reason I don't use ProtonVPN isn't because they're a bad service or anything like that. I love what they do. And I, I have, I can only say good things about their VPN service, but my personal choice is I don't want to give over my source IP to the same company that has info on, on when I'm accessing email, stuff like that. So that's really just a personal one. It's not like something that everyone needs to take, um, but just figure out to kind of throw that out there as a, a way that I approach using VPN that maybe offers other services alongside the VPN service itself. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, I think that's all we had to cover for today. Um, the next episode, I do want to touch on Tor, and we'll kind of do a deep dive into to what Tor is, how it works. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the the active denial of service attack that they've been undergoing, uh, and do a bit of comparing and contrasting with a VPN. Because usually, when people are looking at the broader approach to network privacy or network anonymity. VPNs and Tor are the, are the main two options there. So we will be covering that on our next episode. Uh, we did have one question through text Q&A. Um, we co- I covered this a little bit, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on Proton VPN as well, if you tried them or have any recommendations. Yeah, so I'm funny enough in the same boat as you where I'm a big fan of Proton Mail, Proton uh, Calendar, and Proton Drive. Uh, they are like my go-to alternative where I don't want to give up the sort of niceties that most people would use Google for in terms of drive, email, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm definitely a, a paying customer of uh, of Proton for all of those services. But uh, again, exactly the same as you, would rather keep that uh, level of separation between my general internet traffic um, and, and sort of share that with a trusted relationship with another company, uh, namely that would be Mulvad VPN. Um, but yeah, in terms of Proton as a company, huge, huge fan. Um, but I do know the Proton VPN, I have tried it in the past. Um, I know they've got, I think, like over a thousand different servers that you can connect to. Um, and just the same as uh, most of the other VPN providers, one one of the benefits that we didn't actually touch on, Seth, um, which is true of all of the providers that we've mentioned is, um, VPNs will allow you to get around kind of geofenced uh, material on the internet. So um, if, like me, you're in the UK and you like to watch US Netflix, then you can set your VPN to the US and watch US shows that are unique to them. That's just one example, but obviously there's the geofenced um, data all over the internet. That could be news articles, could be videos, uh, it could be specific websites. It could even be uh, peer-to-peer trade networks that you might be. they might block access to a certain uh, countries, uh, you can actually get around that with VPNs. Whether you do so is completely up to you. Of course, you should uh, always operate within the, the laws of the land. But uh, that is uh, some uh, that is an option uh, and one that we we failed to mention earlier. So I think I just wanted to mention that. But generally speaking, yeah, I've got nothing but good things to say about Proton uh, as a company, and um, I know a lot of people that use their VPN service and have had fantastic results with it. Yeah, I think the the geofencing workarounds is kind of the traditional reason that a lot of people have used VPNs in the past. I think it's probably the the more common one there because that was, I mean, that was the only reason that I knew what a VPN was before I started caring about personal privacy was just how can I get around this this geoblock or get around the blackout for this game because I live in a specific state or those kinds of things. So it definitely is a is a tool there. It's not necessarily a privacy reason, but it's a, like a kind of an added feature that can be useful. Um, if you need to get around on something like that. Um, again, not advocating for breaking the law or something, but can be handy depending on where you're traveling to or something like that. Um, but I did have one other question where someone was wondering a little bit more about LokiNet, uh, which is, it's an onion routed tool. It's more like Tor than it is a VPN, um, but I figured we could we could chat about that a little bit. I'll just dive into it since I've I've looked into them a good bit. If you have anything to add Q&A, feel free to, to jump in at any time. Um, but they basically have built out a network that's similar to Tor and that it's onion routed and that you choose a, a random path between nodes on the network. But the approach that they've taken is they actually have a, a cryptocurrency that they use behind the scenes to incentivize these nodes. So it's actually a proof of stake network uh, underneath the, the hood of their anonymity network. 
so that each of the nodes in the network actually makes cryptocurrency by performing their tasks. Tasks reputation is done via cryptocurrency. So it's one of those situations where I'm hesitant to use a tool like that. I recommend it because the actual set of users using it is quite small. Uh, it's, a, it's a small cryptocurrency. It's a small cryptocurrency community. So there's not a ton of people using it and a ton of actual traffic over it, which means that the crowd for you to hide in is lower. Um, it is an interesting tool. They've essentially just copied what Tor does from the privacy perspective. Um, but I think it's one of those where like, I would generally avoid it. If you need an onion routed network, just use the Tor network. It's going to be better for you. Um, and if you need a VPN, just use a good trusted VPN service instead. It's one of those where just I, I haven't found a convincing reason to actually use their network. Uh, they do have a, a messenger that uses the network under the hood called Session, which I know a lot of people use and enjoy. Um, it's one that I've tested out a lot, and it works reasonably well. But it just kind of hasn't fit into fit into my toolkit. Um, but yeah, I think that's uh, that's about it for for LokiNet. Um, any other any other questions you have Q and A? I want to jump in with. Yeah, one common one that I get that I'm sure you'd be able to answer in a really succinct way, um, and I get asked this quite often is um, when people are delving into the the privacy realm, uh, particularly when they're in the Bitcoin circles, uh, they hear people talking about VPNs, they hear more people talking about Tor. Uh, you know, Bitcoin wallets, uh, specifically the private ones, are heavily uh, dependent on on the Tor network. Um, a lot of people are confused about sort of when they should use Tor, when they should use a VPN. Should they use both at the same time? Is that a waste of time? Are they kind of over overdoing that? Um, would you be able to kind of pad that out to us and uh, don't need to go into the details of each one, but maybe what's applicable where and, and whether there's ever a time that you would need to use both of them? Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm glad you brought that one up because that is probably the most common one I get from people who are familiar with the, the Tor network. Um so the way that I approach it is using both tools together can give you some benefits, but is usually not a good idea. <laughs> so that's kind of the, the TLDR. Um, the reason why I say that is if you're trying to use the Tor network, but you're trying to hide the fact that you're using Tor, the best way to do that is to run it behind a VPN. Assuming a VPN is not a problem in your jurisdiction. Usually the reason why you'd want to hide the fact that you're using Tor is if you're in some sort of oppressive regime like China, Iran, et cetera, where you need access to the Tor network, but you don't want to reveal that to your government or to your ISP. Because it's it's very apparent when someone is using Tor just over the, the regular internet. Uh, Tor itself does not hide the fact that you're using Tor. It just hides the activity within the Tor network. So it's very visible when you are using it. If you connect to a VPN first and then connect to Tor, like launch Tor browser when you're connected to iVPN, for instance, what that does is it means that your usage of Tor is hidden from your ISP, even though your VPN provider can see that you're using Tor. So again, it, it kind of shifts the trust there. It can be good if using Tor is illegal for some reason in your in your area, um, that should never be illegal. If it's illegal in your country, I'm, I'm really sorry because it's very sad that censorship would get to that level, but um, that's the main reason for using Tor behind a VPN. The main issue that comes with that is that there's some additional risks of the things that a VPN provider could do with your traffic to try to get insight into what you're doing on the Tor network. Uh, it gets into the weeds a little bit technically, but essentially they could try to limit the routes that you take within the Tor network or could pretend to be the Tor network within their network and essentially Sybil attack you and only provide you Tor nodes that they run so that they could try to de-anonymize your traffic within the Tor network uh, because they have the control and visibility of when your network exits into the Tor network. So it introduces some extra risk. If you trust your VPN provider and you have a clear reason why you're trying to use Tor for VPN, it's totally fine. Uh, I definitely do it quite often just because I use always on VPN. I usually don't think about disabling it to use Tor or vice versa. So oftentimes I actually am using Tor over VPN because um, it's not a problem for me, but it, I don't do it intentionally to hide the fact that I'm running Tor. Tor is definitely not illegal in the US right now. Um, vice versa, if you're talking about using a VPN over the Tor network, Usually that would be because Tor isn't illegal, but a VPN is, or you need to try to hide your source IP address from the VPN provider themselves. Um, I think there's very limited real world use cases when you would need to do that. 
but there there are potential cases where you need to hide the fact that you're using a VPN, but the fact that you're using Tor isn't illegal. In that very specific case, again, that works, but that's going to make for a very, very painful browsing experience because not only are you then getting the getting the latency and the slowness that's inherent with Tor that isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's one of the downsides, but then you're also getting the added latency and slowness of the VPN, and there's some more inherent issues with potential de-anonymization by the VPN provider. So it's a long-winded answer. Basically, the the TLDR is if you don't know why you would be doing it, don't do VPN over Tor or Tor over VPN and just do one or the other. But if you're just mostly using VPN always on and you want to connect to Tor sometimes, it's usually not something to be concerned about connecting to Tor while you're on a VPN. It's not something that I worry about. It's not something that, that most people should. But it's usually not something to try to do intentionally unless you know within your threat model what you're actually trying to protect yourself against and why you're trying to do that. Um, anything that I can kind of expand on there, Q&A? No, I think uh, I think you covered uh, all of the points there, and it was quite a, a, an expansive answer. So I appreciate that, and I've definitely learned a couple of pieces there. I think um, most of the to, to bring it kind of back to Bitcoin, which is kind of why we're all here. Uh, I guess most of the the uh, privacy focused wallets will have uh, either Tor on by default, or will have Tor uh, built in so that you can enable that. Um, and that is the way that most of these common no packages, so Ronin Dojo, Umbrella, Raspberry Blitz, et cetera, will all default to uh, allow you to have remote connections via the Tor network. And that enables you to um, not need to have that trusted relationship with um, uh, with with a VPN provider. Uh, and that will mean that you don't need to forward any ports or do any advanced networking stuff Um but unfortunately, you do. Uh, that does make you susceptible to the uh, DDoS attacks and, and latency that uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about more uh, next time when we cover the Tor network. But um, it does provide like a default um, turnkey sort of easy remote connection with have that does have some good privacy guarantees. Um, but there is an increasing um, an, an increasing trend in these node packages where, particularly since we've had the uh, the Tor network um, attacks and ongoing attacks, should I say, uh, that where they are building some client uh, and some client server based personal VPNs, which come with, which have sort of different uh, benefits to the, the types of VPNs that we've been talking about today, uh, although they are sort of somewhat under the same umbrella and they do allow for, for some uh, remote uh, access uh, via an encrypted tunnel. Uh, but the difference being is that it, it's a, for personal use uh, and you wouldn't be sharing that with, uh, with uh, you know, potentially thousands of other people using the same server. Only other thing that I wanted to touch on a little bit more is I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about like specifically pairing using a VPN with using Bitcoin um, and maybe specifically like what using a VPN provides you when you're using a, a light client, like a mobile wallet that connects to someone else's node or like Sparrow wallet connected to someone else's Electrum node. Um, could you break down a little bit of like why that would be advantageous and maybe even why you do that instead of using Tor? Yeah, so uh, the obvious one I kind of touched on it is that the, that Tor, the Tor network has been undergoing an ongoing DDoS or denial of service attack, uh, which for the end user has meant that their connections have either been uh, unstable or not connecting at all, or they have been uh, been waiting up for a long time to to use the basic features of their wallet. So what an end user would see is, let's say, they um, fail connections or that they see unexpected balances. There may be balances missing, transactions missing, which can be a frightening thing. Um, so whilst it does provide a good turnkey alternative with privacy guarantees, uh, it can be somewhat alarming when you open your wallet and you see uh, a couple of million sats less than what you thought you had or, or a recent transaction that hasn't shown up. Um, unfortunately, these Tor attacks can result in that sort of behavior. Uh, where you would want to, uh, or where maybe a VPN might be a, a suitable alternative, um, let's say if you didn't run your own node and you had no choice but to connect your Envoy wallet or your Spiral wallet to uh, what's known as a public Electrum server where somebody else is running the node, um, and sort of sending you your transactional information and your Bitcoin balances to your wallet um, via their own node. If you were to do that without a VPN, uh, that uh, node operator would immediately see, obviously, all of your Bitcoin balances, all of your uh, recent transactions, um, and exactly where that those requests are coming from in the t in the form of an IP address. Uh, if that's from your 
home IP address or your your, your home sort of local network, then they're going to learn your rough um, geographical location, which can be coupled obviously with that transactional information to learn a fair bit of information about who it is that's connecting to their node. If you were to do that same connection through something like Mulvad VPN or iVPN, etc., all the ones we've been talking about, then those uh, balance requests and those Bitcoin transaction requests would be coming from one of potentially thousands of users that are all using whichever service it is, Proton, Mulvad, etc. So again, it comes back to that anonymity set where uh, rather than being a single IP address asking for all the balances of these Bitcoin addresses, um, you're in a shared IP address uh, where you look the same as all of the other users that are connected to that server. So it is uh, somewhat of a su suitable alternative uh, and it does limit that sort of information that you're sharing with the person that's running that node that you are connecting to if you don't have your own node. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for covering that Q&A. I think we'll probably go ahead and wrap up there. Um, the one other thing I wanted to add on using a VPN with Bitcoin is it can also be advantageous for if you need to hide the fact that you're running a Bitcoin node or using a Bitcoin wallet at all, even if you're running your own Bitcoin node and not trusting someone else's. Um, that can be one of the advantages to using a VPN is you can run your Bitcoin node behind a VPN and then really connect to that node behind a VPN as well. Uh, and that can prevent your ISP from knowing that you that you use Bitcoin, that you run a Bitcoin node, um, which in most jurisdictions is not a problem today, but who knows what that will be in the future. Um, so I think that that probably becomes a more and more important way to use a VPN as we enter more of an adversarial, adversarial environment. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. It can be a little complex to actually run your node behind a VPN. Uh, all the, the actual steps to do that vary a lot, so we won't dive into that too much, but I think that's another another piece there. Thanks for jumping in for this episode of Journey to Sovereignty, and I hope you'll join us for our next live Twitter space every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. GMT. Joining us live gives you a chance to listen in, participate, and get your questions answered on the spot. Follow us at FoundationDVCS on Twitter to keep up with the latest news, get notifications when we go live, and much more. See you at the next one, and thanks for joining us on the Journey to Sovereignty.